Welcome to episode 72 of Breakout Culture. I can't quite believe we've reached 72 episodes and I'm still Ed Vasey, the <laughs> culture editor of Country and Townhouse magazine. And I'm still Charlotte Metcalf, associate editor of Country and Townhouse magazine. And we're going to be talking about Shakespeare today because yesterday was the great bard's birthday. Though he was born 458 years ago, he's still giving Britain its stonking global reputation for great literature and all the exciting new productions of Shakespeare plays opening this summer, a testament to his continuing popularity. For a start, we've just witnessed Kit Harrington from Game of Thrones, starring in Henry V at the Donmar Warehouse, directed by the award-winning Max Webster, who directed Life of Pi. That run of Henry V is finished, but the play was filmed live at Donmar, and the film will be on release at cinemas around the UK from National Theatre Live until the 2nd of June. And at the Globe, there's much to do about nothing, which is set in northern Italy at the end of the war. It opened on Friday and it runs till the 23rd of October. It's directed by the ever-inventive Lucy Bailey, an acclaimed Shakespeare director, notable for her notoriously gory production of Titus Andronicus. Lucy was also the creative force behind the sellout Agatha Christie's witness for the prosecution at County Hall. And then there's more. From the 3rd of May until September, the Globe is going to have Julius Caesar on. Played Julius Caesar being played by Dickon Tyrrell with Anna Critchlow playing Brutus. That's being, you see what they did there. That's being directed <laughs> by Diane Page, who won the 2021 JMK Award for Young Directors. Also at the Globe from the 10th of June, Catherine Hunter will return to her role as King Lear, 20 years on from from Theatre de Complicité's groundbreaking production. This time round, the Globe's artistic director, Michel Terry, will play Cordelia and the Fool. The Globe's also going to be staging Henry VIII, the play Shakespeare wrote with John Fletcher, seen from a female perspective. And later on in the summer, they'll be doing a production of The Tempest. Meanwhile, at the Royal... I hope you're taking notes, by the way. At the Royal Shakespeare (laughs) Theatre in Stratford, Gregory Durant will direct Richard III. Do you get the feeling we're obsessed by Shakespeare, or the country's obsessed by (laughs) Shakespeare? It opens on 23rd of June with Arthur Hughes in the title role. He's making his debut at the RSC. He's known for playing Ryan Daniel in the TV series The Innocents and for playing Rory, Brian Archer's son with Siobhan in The Archers. Then, of course, we've got, which I have actually seen, I watched it over the holidays, Joel Cohen's black and white movie version of Macbeth, nominated for three Oscars and a BAFTA, starring Denzel Washington and Francis McDormand. And, of course, Catherine Hunter, who, as Charlotte said earlier, is going to play Lear at the Globe, taking the part of all three witches with brilliantly macabre weirdness. In fact, some people said she should have won the Oscar for Best Supporting Actress. Anyway, all this goes to show that Shakespeare is as in demand today as ever, despite rumbling debate about whether he should continue to be studied in schools. To celebrate Shakespeare's birthday with us today is our guest Robert McCrum. Robert is a hugely revered figure in the world of publishing, having been editor-in-chief of Faber and Faber for nearly 20 years and literary editor of The Observer and then associate editor between 1996 and 2009. He famously suffered a severe stroke, which was the subject of his acclaimed memoir, My Year Off. In 2020, his book Shakespearean was published, a song of praise to Shakespeare, in which Robert writes about how reading Shakespeare gave him the mental and emotional strength to recover. I'm delighted to say he's in great form and remains a robust lover and supporter of Shakespeare. Hello, Robert. Hello, Charlotte. Hello, hello, Ed. Nice to be here. Very nice to 
have you here, Robert. So people who haven't read your book, Shakespearean, it starts from the premise that after you'd had your stroke, which you were very young, you were in your early 40s. I was 42, yes. Yeah. You, you mm. found that you could only sort of remember snatches of Shakespeare in terms of being able to sort of articulate and speak. So tell us how Shakespeare helped you to recover. Well, the book itself actually began with something I'll come back, which I'll come back to in a minute. But the, the, the thing about recovering from a stroke was my left side was completely paralysed and I couldn't, I couldn't do anything. But I could hold a play script and my, I could read by holding a play script and Shakespeare play scripts. I've got, I've got a number of them here. They're very, they're very uh, easy to hold and, and reading with one hand, the script was a, was a good way into, and it was bringing back memories of the past. It's a way of you know, recovering co connections with memories themselves and extraordinary iconic moments in childhood and school, going to see plays, particular productions. And because I was also at that time, involved with a group called the Shakespeare Club, which would go and see Shakespeare plays. Um, but the actual inspiration for the book was took place in New York in 2017, shortly after Donald Trump had been made president. And this was an event which took place in the middle of Central Park, for Shakespeare in the Park, in June 2017. It was a production of Julius Caesar, and they cast... Shakespeare as Trump. The Oscar Eustace's <laughs> production was cast as Trump. You know, blonde wig, red hair, white shirt. And every night for several weeks, avid liberal New Yorkers could see the president being butchered, butchered on the stage in the middle of New York. It was an extraordinary sort of surreal moment. And the, the production became very, very controversial and was denounced on Fox News. And I was there, in fact, with the Shakespeare scholar Jim Shapiro, we both looked at each other and we said, this play is 400 years old and it could have been written yesterday, in a sense. Yeah. Um, it, it had, it had a, a grip on the minds of, of, of the audience, which was completely modern, so much so that when it was referred to by Fox News a, a day or two later, they treated it as though it was a contemporary play. Um, extraordinary. And the thing about Shakespeare is that he does have this capacity to take hold of our imaginations in, in, in the contemporary moment. He, he, he had a real gift for understanding points of jeopardy in, in politics, in art, in culture, and so forth. And so the question I began to ask myself, why and how is it that 400 years later this can go on? And what, what is the key to the way in which he does this? And the book is partly an answer to that question. Can we just, can we um, go on then to um, Henry V at the, at the Donmar, which is now being shown on National Theatre Live? Because, Ed, have you seen that? I know Robert's seen it. Did, did you see it, Ed? That I did have tickets to Henry V and then I couldn't go. So that doesn't take us very far, does it? <laughs> well, Robert, you've seen I, it. I, I, you, I don't think you missed much, Ed. Honestly, I mean, it was, <laughs> I, it was a great disappointment. Um, oh. And one of the... Because you got rave of, reviews, Kit Harrington. Well, he was probably the best thing in it, mm. but he were, the, the cast as a whole were pretty lacklustre and the director had a number of slightly over, overheated ideas about what he wanted to do. For example, the French court was in French. But then, of course, you watch it and you say to yourself, this is a play about a man or a king who's invading a country against its will on a trumped, essentially a trumped-up charge of sovereignty, which... which, which even English law couldn't justify. You know, in the time of Ukraine, there, there, there were yeah. resonances. But the problem with the production in its, in its I think, rather desperate search to, to engage us, with the, engage a contemporary audience, 
So yeah. they played Sweet Caroline and they had people being sick on stage. They had <laughs> gr- grim, grim um, violence. But it failed to, in my view, get at the humanity. The point is the players are tub-thumping peon of praise for Henry V. Obviously, the, ans- the great ancestor of Shakespeare's queen, Elizabeth I. Yeah. But it overlooks the fact that, the, that he smuggles into the script all the way along the line from the very beginning a sympathy for the ordinary man and woman, yes. the, 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 the bereaved widows and the, and the, and the, and the, and the ransacked um, victims of, of violence. Yeah. There's a famous scene of, of um, uh, war crimes with the killing of the prisoners in Act 4 and all the way through, he is at pains to make Henry very ordinary and the soldiers struggling with their identity as, as killers. So, it's, so it's in some ways, it's a, it's a very modern play. But I, So going back to the, the Don Mar production, I felt it, it didn't serve the subtlety of the text very well. And yes. Kit Harrington, although good, was, and the other problem was he was good, but, for example, the chorus didn't know how to read to deliver her lines. And if you go wrong on the chorus, the whole thing starts to fall apart. It's like, it's like making a mess of the witches in Macbeth. Yes. You have to have a very good, clear beginning. It's a very, very uh, rousing beginning. And he refers to the audience. He says, gentles all. He's, he's trying to woo the audience to his side. He admits that the actors are only actors. And he talks about, he says, this is a work of imagination. And so he's very, very attuned to the complexity of what he's doing on stage and he's so he's very human although he gets he gets cited as this speaking for speaking for britain speaking for henry v um and so forth he is also a man of deep humanity and i think i think to go back to your introduction one of his greater part of his great appeal which does continue is his humanity and it's worth I think relevance is a bit of a wild goose chase a lot of the time. If you, get, if you, if you try to be too re- relevant, you can drag the, re- the audience into a, away, from their, you know, away from their thoughts and away from their imaginations by boxing it into, into a framework which can be rather limiting. He's, he's bigger than, the, than, than the, the mask of rele- relevance might suggest. What's the best production you've seen on stage, Robert? Of Henry V? Mm. Um, Adrian Lester. And actually, on the, on the Olivier stage, interestingly, and... It worked really well because the National are trained to speak the verse, which I'm afraid the mm. Donmar cast were, are not trained to do. Uh, they, they managed to murder a number of great scenes <laughs> just, just by, by, by virtue of not being able to do it. But the National production was fantastic. And, of course, it, it can be very... There are famous examples. The famous famous film, of Lawrence Olivier, yes, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, in that, World War that, II. Yes, yeah. yes. Um, yeah. Which was very, you know, tub-thumping. And, again, seen as a, as a, as a, as a, as a celebration of... British culture and martial spirit on the eve of D-Day um, and was actually released in America before D-Day and did very well, actually did better in America than it did in Britain. Amazing. Yeah. Didn't know that. Uh, Churchill had a hand, Winston Churchill had a hand in the production. No. Yeah, he did. He, he kind of, he let it be known that he, he approved of the idea of it being done. What's your view of cutting Shakespeare? I think you have to cut. Yeah, you have to, and all the all the all the good directors they they cut. I'm against what some Americans want to do, which is to modernise. I think Shakespeare yes. is actually 
is very intelligible. When he wants to be intelligible, he's very intelligible. I mean, who, who, could, who could misunderstand to be or not to be? The other thing that Shakespeare does, he, he loves to have opposites. So it's to be or not to be. He, everything's always opposed by something else. It's, mm. it, it's, um, it's dialectical. And he, he always places the, the, he puts the audience on the edge of their seat fast as he possibly can. So uh, Hamlet opens with a ghost. Macbeth opens with witches. Tempest opens with a terrific storm. He doesn't muck around. There's no clearing the throat. He really understood. <laughs> you, you, had to, you had to get going. What's your favourite tragedy? Dep- dep- oh, I think it depends. I th- people always, always ask that kind of question. And I think I always say it depends on your mood. You know, in some yeah. moods, it's Lear. You know, Lear is a wonderful, a great. Some, Johnson, Samuel Johnson said it, it was unperformable. You could only read it. But I think Lear is a great, great tragedy. Macbeth is a brilliant... Done, oh, I mean, uh, can I, can I tell, tell you my, my Macbeth story? Because this tells you more about yes. Shakespeare. So he's, he works for, the, for the, the Lord Chamberlain's men. And they're employed by the Lord Chamberlain and by Elizabeth I. And for 10 years, they are a very successful theatrical troupe in London. Then the Queen dies. And so it's like, you know, change of prime minister in, in political, if for a party or a change of editor for a newspaper. It's suddenly their livelihood, their patron is dead, their livelihood seems threatened. And they don't know much about James, but they, they soon discover that he's mad about, the, he loves the theatre. So obviously they turn to Shakespeare to do the first, this is the first play to be played to the new Scottish king. So what does Shakespeare do? He doesn't know much about James, but he does know that he is obsessed with witches, is terrified of, of assassination, and is struggling to keep his kingdom together. And opens up beginning... I mean, the, the, the nerves in the green room the night before the first night of Macbeth before, <laughs> in front of James I must have been incredible. Because this is incredibly disruptive, um, transgressive, and it's really in the... Right in the face... You know, there's the king in the front row, and they're saying... Um, and they've got Macbeth killing Duncan, you've got the witches, all the things which drive James to distraction. What's the <laughs> result? He absolutely loves it. He asks for it to be done again twice over, and the, and the Lord Chamberlain's men, now the King's men, they're in work forever. They, they never stop working. They, he loves them. <laughs> so it's an example of, of risk and originality yielding creative dividends. Uh, going back to my point about the chorus in Henry V, yes. it's very important you don't monkey around with the witches they set the scene yes and you have to you have to play that you have to do and the, what's good about the, is it Joel or Ethan Cohen's production is Joel. he doesn't he doesn't flinch in doing the witches properly mm. so, the, so they become the chorus to Macbeth's wild ambition and again you know talking about relevance here's a play about the tragedy of, of, of a deranged leader driven mad by ambition Mm. Yes, mm. I, but again, I think it, I would argue that's something to reflect upon because Shakespeare is brilliant about power and brilliant about the ex- exercise of power. But it does not mean you then have to set the whole thing in, in Soviet Russia. It, it really doesn't. I mean, not that they're, they're doing that, but the temptation to kind of draw mm. relevance from every possible. I, I say, let the plays. The plays are you know, they speak for themselves. Mm. And Macbeth is a very good example. Going back to um, cutting, and Ed's question about cutting, it's it's as thin as a th- it's it's absolutely it's, it's it's a diet edition. It's 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 you know it's a very it's two hours. It's very short, and it goes like a train when it's done well. Can we go on now to Richard 
the third because that's coming to Stratford. Well, the thing about Richard the third, uh, I don't wish to anticipate what Ed wants to say about it, is that it's a, it's a brilliant study of megalomania, <laughs> and um, it you know the other thing about Shakespeare, it's worth remembering, he grew up in Stratford in a very placid provincial English town, a long way from the storms and stresses of politics. But, and he came to London at the age of 19 or 20, we don't, never, we're not quite sure when. He came to London, which was absolutely seething with politics and, and talks of coups and counterplots and plots and strategies. And then, of course, soon after he gets to London, the gunpowder plot, the plot which never happened, nearly blew the, the English estate sky high. So my point is, he is pitched into a ringside seat as a member of the Lord Chamberlain's men doing plays for Queen Elizabeth I at the apex of political struggle. It's really interesting. And so Richard III, which is a young man's play, is almost ecstatic in its, its love of playing with megalomania. And the famous scene, the, the famous strawberry scene, which is the Act 3, scene... Four, this is this is the, the the destruction of Hastings, and they've all been summoned. All the all the other characters, the Bishop of Ely, Buckingham, Hastings, and Ratcliffe and North, they're all they're all summoned at three in the morning, and Richard's not there. And there's some there's, there's brilliant dialogue which shows they're all as nervous as hell. And then Richard turns up, and he is sinister and he's malevolent. And there's, there's a, a point where he says, My Lord of Ely, when I was last in Hoburn, I saw good strawberries in your garden there. I do beseech you, send for some of them. So in the middle of this psychotic destruction of Hastings, he says, how about some strawberries, guys? <laughs> it's an extraordinary moment. And a, a page later, um, the Bishop of Ely says, where is my Lord the Duke of Gloucester? That's Richard III. I have sent for these strawberries. The strawberries arrive, and then Hastings is executed. Uh, take it out and, and, and destroy it. And it's an extraordinary virtuoso version of Shakespeare's way with, with mundane and high-flown tragedy, drama, whatever you want to call it. But it's psychotic. And then there's another scene later on, which I didn't mention to you in advance, Charlotte, but very famous scene where, Act 4, Scene 4, where he, he, he's confronted by the, by the, the queens of the, of the men who, who, who he has widowed, he's, he's killed their husbands. And yes. so the, the Duchess of York said, I had a Richard too, and thou didst kill him. I had a Rutland too, and thou helps to kill him. And, and on they go. But at the end of the scene, which is, again, young Shakespeare showing off like mad, he has terrified the, these women, and then he proposes marriage to one of them. It's an extraordinary yeah. <laughs> it is reversal. Amazing. It is amazing. And when, when it's done on stage, done well, it is absolutely... It's such a, a memorable scene when it's done well. It's an incredible scene. And then, see, I think the other thing is... To go back to Shakespeare, you know, the, the, the wide-eyed boy from the provinces coming to the city, he sees these great players for what they are as actors. And so Richard III plays with being the actor, acting the king. He's very self-consciously being a king. And so part of the attraction is that the, 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 these monarchs become self-consciously figures in history. And that's why we're, we're, partly why we're gripped by them. Yeah, strutting and fretting their arms yeah. upon the stage. Yeah. Uh, it's quite interesting. We had on the podcast a while back um, Geoffrey Marsh, 
who really... Oh, yes. Re- I, I know, yes. Yeah, yeah he wrote that wonderful book where he really yeah. researched all Shakespeare's neighbours. Yeah. And it turned out, you know, he's... Oh, yes. Do you remember? And, and, yeah. and coming from, from this very provincial town of Stratford, he's suddenly in this sort of milieu where there's suddenly sort of Italian physicians living next door. And, yes, exactly. And he, it was really interesting, wasn't it, that book? Actually, Je- Je- Jeff took me on a tour of, the, of that. It's even still... It's in Bishopsgate. But when you go there, it's a riveting experience because it's this tiny little island in the city under the under the the, the, the lloyd's building in the shadow of, of, of the lloyd's building and it's as though it, it's, it's it's just been left by by chance the planners haven't got to it so you feel as though when you're in the bishopsgate st helens you feel as though shakespeare could just walk in and just join you it's it's magical it is this thing about shakespeare that he's sort of you know our most famous kind of Englishman, as it were, and yet we sort of know so little about him, certainly less than you would know about contemporaries, you know, obviously Queen Elizabeth, etc. And I was thinking in a sort of slightly random way, you know, you take a playwright like James Graham, who's emerging on the scene, you know, in the 21st century, you interview him, you understand his influences, you understand why he came to playwriting. We can't do that with Shakespeare. And I still think, I certainly, one cannot get one's head round, as you said, this chap coming from a rather provincial, quiet, town becoming england's greatest playwright how does that journey mm. uh, and you, you you know when asked this question and you end up with with uh, my answer is then what i say he's a genius which is mm. doesn't help much but, <laughs> <laughs> but he he had this extraordinary gift uh, also the other thing about shakespeare's you know we we now talk about him as this global icon etc cetera, etc cetera. but actually for the first 150 years of his afterlife he was he was sort of semi forgotten. It was the Americans who discovered. Yes, him. exactly. If we'd had this conversation in seventeen twenty two, which we could easily have done, yeah. at the time of Alexander Pope's edition of Shakespeare, mm. most of the if the, let's just play let's imagine this podcast is taking place in seventeen twenty two, and and you're you're, yeah. you're Robert Walpole Ed, or something someone like that. <laughs> He'd love to bring Robert Walpole. He slept in Robert Walpole's bedroom. Well, that, that, that how to oh, make well, the, that, tell that, us tell, tell us more. Oh, it's a great story. I'll tell you in a minute. Uh, okay. It's, it's, okay. Well, I, I, I'm, I'm going to say. I'm not going to say another word until you tell us. Tell us about Robert. Robert I think I've told it on the podcast before. You have. But go on. Tell us again. Well, it's my favourite ever exhibition ever. Was the Houghton Hall exhibition where they reunited uh, the house with the collection that had gone to the Hermitage, sold to Catherine the Great, and uh, I was the arts minister at the time, so I was invited to the sort of opening night dinner and to stay the night and. I was given what I regarded as a rather small bedroom as Vivian Duffield and Jacob Rothschild were shown to their state rooms. <laughs> <laughs> I was feeling slightly, you know, uh, you know, pompous about the whole thing until I sat next to uh, the Chatelaine and she said, how are you enjoying sleeping in Robert Walpole's bedroom? <laughs> so I was immediately <laughs> in my place. He had a tiny little bedroom off his study. It was amazing. Anyway, to go back to 17... If, if we'd had this podcast in 1722... Most of the audience would be fairly mystified about what we're talking about. I mean, some people would know, but lots of them wouldn't. And it's not until the Romantics, combined with the Americans, who, for, for quite different reasons, create what a local writer calls a temporary contemporary writer calls bardolatry. Bardolatry comes in to play in the eighteen hundreds, but not before. Why do the Americans get into it? Well, I think it's 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 a nostalgia for for England. It's 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 the classic immigrant nostalgia kick and they 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 wanted somebody they could they could look back to 
who wasn't uh, associated with the hated Hanoverians. And, you know, people like John Adams, Benjamin Franklin, and Thomas Jefferson, author of the, of the Declaration of Independence, they were avid uh, readers of They loved to read Shakespeare. And by the 1830s, this is a very famous factoid, uh, when de Tocqueville goes around America, he, has this, a, he makes this, this celebrated remark, and he said, in every log cabin you come to, you find a copy of Shakespeare. The Americans love Shakespeare, and... They use him, to go back to where we started with the Trump Caesar, Shakespeare is the means by which they have difficult conversations. He becomes the, he becomes the conduit by which they discuss race or civil strife or whatever. We don't do that. We, you know, we may have a, a big issue about, I don't know, post-Brexit, our place in the world, or, what, or multicultural issues or civil strife, but we don't turn to Shakespeare as an explicator. The Americans do. Um, well, someone might have done a Brexit Shakespeare, but we'll have to think of which play would be the best one to do Brexit through. Oh, gosh. Um, well, Coriolanus is also very good on... on uh, I don't, uh, hard to say. Uh, well, actually, Macbeth is... is um, there's a, There are many references, because it was written after the Gunpowder Plot, many references to the destruction of the kingdom and the, the, and the, the division of the kingdom. Mm. So that's a, you know, that's a possibility. I don't want to change gear without Charlotte's permission, but it <laughs> occurred to me that some of this podcast should be about Robert McCrum. Because you've obviously been quite... Uh, you're, you give your unvarnished views. You haven't held back on the Donmar. I'd love... Given that you've been a highly successful publisher and a highly successful literary editor, I'd love to know your views on those two industries if you like well i think i think things have changed a lot i mean first of all in my in, in, in our lifetimes ed you've seen the literary pages shrink by almost half yeah and I, and I was on the observer for 20 years or thereabouts and i started with, with about 10 pages for books and when i left well, well actually i went on to do other things on the paper but when i ceased to be literary editor we were down to i think seven or eight and that was a lot and there were many other papers where they'd just given up doing books. And I think when I was growing up, I'm sure you remember this, you remember the, 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 the papers, the Sunday papers, had a real hold over the imagination of English readers. Uh, and that may not have been a good thing because, it, of course, the, 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 the arbiters of cult, culture in those days tended to have lunch in the Garrick and tended to come from Oxbridge. Um, so it was, very, very, it was a very small world. Uh, and that's all gone. And now, you know, podcasts, social media have taken over. And so publishing has, has changed. And also there's social media, multiculturalism, all the great houses of, of London are now having ethnically diverse uh, hiring. So that, and many more women. There's now 50% of, at least 50% of all fiction is written by women, which is written and published by women, which is very good. Big change. And so I think, you know, we are in a, pe a period of intense transition culturally. And I think... To go back to what I was about to say about theatre and surviving COVID, which it seems to have done surprisingly well, because there was a period, there was a very black period during COVID too, when the theatre was really struggling. And I think if the history of plagues is anything to go by, if you look at all previous plagues from the first plagues of Athens in the fifth century, through the great Roman plagues, through all the plagues of Shakespeare's time, they almost always have a cultural or a political dividend. And I think we may already be seeing the, the political dividend in the Ukraine war. If the Ukraine war is the result of the fevered imagination of a lunatic cutting himself off from his people during a period of plague, i.e. Putin, then U Ukraine is a direct consequence of, of COVID, perhaps.
putting your finger in the wind in times of intense cultural transition. It's very difficult to get a, a, a view on it. But my view is that in books and writing, never mind the quality, that's not for us to talk about, just feel the width. This is a golden age of reading. People are more reading, there's more reading going on in English all over the world on a colossal scale. That's, that must be a plus. So it's a golden age of print. Um, it's a golden age of communication. Visit this podcast. I'm an extraordinary phenomenon. Here we are, scattered around the place, communicating through electronic means and sharing thoughts on this, in this incredible way. Amazing. And just before we let you go, you've just finished a book, haven't you? Can you tell us anything about I it? I can't. I, I'm just. I'm just. I'm sitting. I'm, I'm sitting on it like like a like a like a, a, a goose with a with a with a with an egg. So I, th- I think he, Shakespeare is golden for now, and I think the appetite. Uh, I love going to see Shakespeare in the Globe. You always the, the buzz you get from the Globe is you see an audience mm. coming to it mm. as though they're seeing it for the first time, and that's yeah. a thrilling experience. Thank you so much. Thank you, Robert. Well, th- Ed, pleasure, to, pleasure to meet you. Next time we'll meet in the flesh. I hope so. Just before we go, there's another big birthday celebration being planned because October this year marks 150 years since Ralph Vaughan Williams was born in 1872. On the 30th of April at Manchester's Bridgewater Hall, Sir Mark Elder will conduct the Halley Orchestra playing Vaughan Williams Symphony 6 and a Sea Symphony. Following that, on 30th the 12th of May, he'll conduct the Halley Orchestra playing Vaughan Williams' Symphony 8 as part of a concert that's also being broadcast live on Radio 3. Then on the 3rd of June, there will be a new release on Halley Orchestra's own label featuring Ralph Vaughan Williams' Symphonies 7 and 9 and Lark Ascending, as well as a box set with the composer's complete symphonies performed by the orchestra with some art conducting over the years. So that's definitely not to be missed by music lovers. Next week, we're very excited because we have one of Britain's most prolific and best-known playwriters on the podcast. David Hare will be with us to talk about his new play, Straight Line Crazy, starring Rafe Fiennes as Robert Moses. I've seen it with Charlotte. We loved it. And we can't wait to talk to David Hare about it next week. Sadly, that's all we've got time for this week. But don't forget that the latest edition of Country and Townhouse is out now at selected newsstands and Waitrose, as well as online, of course, along with the 2022 edition of Great British Brands. We can be found at countryandtownhouse.co.uk, where you'll also find our sister podcast, House Guest, with all the latest news on interiors from Carol Annette. And just add forward slash newsletter to subscribe both to the weekly magazine newsletter and to the Great British Brands Monthly. We love your feedback, so keep it coming to charlotte at countryandtownhouse.co.uk. See you next week.